Hello and welcome to our May podcast recording for the insurance contracts discussion at the ISB meeting. At this month's meeting, the ISB discussed three types of things. Firstly, it considered a report from the TRG meeting held on the 4th of April uh, earlier this year. Secondly, it did some housekeeping on various technical issues that are needed before we issue the exposure draft. And finally, we got the board to set a comment period um, for, the, for the exposure draft of 90 days. Um, Daryl, do you want to make a few observations on the Transition Resource Group reporting? Sure. I think the board welcomed the fact that we have had consistent information throughout the process from the transition report group, uh, from the transition resources group. Uh, the two documents that came to the board meeting this month were a summary of what happened at the April discussion, along with a uh, the log that we have kept of the submissions that we received throughout. In teeing up the discussion, staff noted that over the course of the last couple of months, we've continued to receive submissions right up to the April meeting, but those submissions have become more have become increasingly detailed, and increasingly outside of the scope of what the TRG is intended to to discuss. Um, at this point in time, therefore, the the staff um, mentioned in the meeting that there are no further plans for TRG, plan, TRG meetings going forward, but we will continue to monitor the submissions over the next couple of months. Yes, but to um, to also recap on what was said, we um, have al- already covered all of the submissions we've received to date in the last That's meeting correct. as well. So on the housekeeping issues, so this was the paper that was called Sweep Issues. It's really a tidy up of the various issues that have arisen as we've been going through the drafting process. And there were two in particular that got quite a lot of discussion uh, um, at the board. The first was about investment components and investment-related services. Yes, uh, this is a discussion that sort of picks up from a discussion that we had and a tentative decision that we had in January of um, this year. At that discussion, what the board agreed was that for contracts that are not direct participation contracts, but that do have investment components, uh, there is a possibility of an investment service being provided and consequently we thought that if that if an entity does determine under those limited circumstances that they are providing an investment service they should consider that investment service in determining their coverage units and the coverage period that they um, that they take under or that they consider for the purposes of release of CSM. Um, As I say, this was a continuation of this discussion in the interim period uh, based on feedback that the staff have had from stakeholders. They identified that in certain circumstances there are contracts that do not have an investment component as we define it. And just to remind everybody, an investment component is an amount or is a, a component that's recognized because the entity expects to return an amount to the policyholder in all circumstances. Um, the staff had identified that there were actually times when even in the absence of an investment component, there was a circumstance in which an investment return service may be provided. And the nature of that is the circumstance where the policyholder during some period of the life of a contract has the right to withdraw funds. And so the staff recommended that we expand the scope of the decision that we took in January to say that if there is the existence of an investment component or the existence of the right to withdraw and the policyholder is expecting to receive a positive return from the contract and the entity has to do some investment activity to generate that return, 
then in that circumstance, the entity is allowed to consider whether or not there is an existence of a service. Now, I think it was an important discussion that happened at the board table about whether if you met those conditions, you actually did have an investment service. But the board concluded that this was a necessary requirement, but not necessarily a determinative requirement. So you need these requirements to be within this allowance, but only once you're in it. But if you're in it, doesn't necessarily mean that you do have the okay. service. And importantly, that there's no, um, it's not an assumption that there is an investment return Correct. service when these criteria are met. I think another area of discussion within this context was about the positive return. And um, the, um, the, 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 some board members wanted to to understand a little bit more about what that positive return meant. Yes, and I think it's 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 um, difficult because of the number of scenarios that you can imagine happening in, in, in these types of products. And in particular, I think it was raised around the board table that you have to imagine that in some jurisdictions right now there is such a thing as a negative interest rate, and so is a positive return or can a positive return ever occur in a negative interest rate environment? And I think what, what the staff essentially said is that you need to look at this in the context of there being a service, and it needs to be the type of service that would not otherwise be available to a policyholder other than through paying somebody to achieve that type of return. Thank you. The other area of discussion was around um, some of the concerns we've had in relation to mutual entities. And the um, issue we've heard there is that because we've got a current value measurement of the insurance contract liability, um, many mutuals will find themselves in a position that they have negative equity or, or no equity. Um, and so we had a discussion around that. Would you like to give us a little bit more colour there, sure. please? I think, I think this was a really good discussion because I think there were a couple of points that we really needed to emphasise through the process of this discussion. The first is that IFRS 17 does not have special requirements for mutuals. Mutuals will account for, if, if a mutual and a non-mutual have an identical contract, they will both under IFRS 17 account for their contract in the same way. And I think we see that as one of the key benefits of IFRS 17 because it means that mutuals are comparable to non-mutuals. The equity issue arises because the capital structure of a mutual is different, which is something aside from um, the, the actual accounting for the insurance contract process. Now, we feel that this comparability is important, so we think from, a, from an IFRS perspective, we not only don't think there's a need, but we in fact think it would be counterproductive to try and introduce some type of different treatment for mutuals. Um, some of the mutuals in reading the standard had concluded that possibly there was a difference in, in the way that they were expected to account relative to insurance companies. So I think that was an important clarification in the discussion that had happened. But mutuals had also found themselves in, in um, struggling to understand the context in which the basis discussed how the, how the board had arrived at the decisions that we had made on on, on treatment of mutuals and how we expected that in certain circumstances at least mutuals would be accounting for transactions. Now I think the board evaluated what is in the basis on a couple of a couple of ways. Firstly we made clear and I think uh, it's an important clarification that the basis can never override what is in the standard. The basis is there to add color, the basis is there to add a little bit of 
um, history to how you've actually got to a particular point, but it can't change the understand. It can't change what is in the standard itself. So I think that was an important initial clarification. The second thing I think we clarified is that there was nothing in the basis that was an incorrect portrayal of what is in the standard. So the basis was at no point actually incorrect in the way it articulated the process. But we did acknowledge that clearly some people are struggling to understand some of the words in the basis. And so what the um, staff proposed and the board agreed to was to add a footnote to one of the paragraphs in the basis just to clearly articulate what the uh, objective of those paragraphs is. Yeah, and I think it was quite um, useful that we were able to um, have a discussion about you know the role of discretionary cash flows and current and future policyholders, and just clarify that the requirements of IFRS 17 on those points apply to everyone who is applying IFRS 17. And then the final thing we did, and this was a quite a quick discussion, was um, on setting the comment period. Um, this, I think, was widely expected, as we've indicated all along, that the urgency of the um, amendments means that we, we need to be fairly expeditious about getting through um, the due process, and we, uh, but at the same time we wanted to be able to balance to make sure that everyone who needs to comment has had the opportunity to do so. So the comment period that was recommended um, was 90 days, and this was discussed at the due process oversight committee earlier this year, which, um, which confirmed that they were happy that we could set that 90-day comment period. So um, that's now confirmed that we will be setting a 90-day comment period for the exposure draft. So in terms of next steps, um, the next thing would be to issue the exposure draft at the end of June. Um, we're busy in the drafting of that, and um, I think we will be um, expecting to uh, receive interesting comment letters, and we look forward to reading them. Thank you for listening to our podcast.